You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. What is true wisdom? I like Dr. MacArthur's quote. He says, it's hard to find a self-professed fool. Most people have an elevated and unrealistically high opinion of their wisdom, although they might not say so. They believe they're just as savvy as the next person. So that might be what we quietly say, but we know it's not right to say it out loud, but we still think it. I think the question also, though, encourages us to ask who around us is wise. Imagine not stressing about making the right decision or knowing whether a friend is really a friend. There are so many things in this life that require wisdom. It's overwhelming. Today, Pastor Tom will speak about James, who addresses the topic of wisdom and challenges you about where your heart should be. James also reveals how we can know who's genuinely wise and who's playing the part. Anyone who might profess themselves as being wise might actually simply be a fool. Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of James chapter 3 as he begins his message, Heavenly and Hellish Wisdom. You know, a lot of people have ideas about um, Christmas. What is Christmas about? You hear some people ask that in the news and they really flub it. (laughs) They get it totally wrong. I like to think of Christmas as an invasion, an invasion, an invasion of one person who embodied and embodies still presently truth. After all, he himself is called the Word of God. He is truth itself. The Christ child coming into the world was an invasion. It's a world of darkness. It's a world of lies. It's a world filled of, with idolatry, not worshiping the God who made the world, not bowing to the authority of heaven. It's a dark planet. And he is the glorious heavenly light. And he brought that light down into the dark world, an invasion. You know, the Pope recently said that celebrating Christmas this year was going to be a sham because of all of the terrorism and war that was going on in the world. I don't think he understands Christmas. This is quite an irony. Christmas is not a wish for world peace. Celebrating Christmas is about celebrating the first advent of Jesus Christ. It's already happened. It's already accomplished. It's, the plan is already set in motion. What He is doing, He's going to do and carry it through to completion. We could celebrate that every year, no matter the state of the world. The heavenly King is going to bring peace to this planet. It's going to happen. It's prophesied. He's the Prince of Peace. His reign will come. He will rule. He will not do it through the governments of the world or through the armies of this world. Peace will never come that way. How will it come? Through His second advent. We in the church age are between those two advents. The first accomplished, the second is coming. A lot of our doctrine is right there. When He comes, He comes ironically on a war horse. People say war is not the answer. Actually, one final war will be the answer. And when he comes, he comes to win the war and to take back what is rightfully his. He'll come with a title deed in his hand to planet Earth. It's his. It's been given to him by God the Father. The whole planet is his. And he comes back to take it. And nobody will be able to stand in his way when he comes back triumphant on that white horse. So, oh, yes, Christmas is in full gear. It's still rolling ahead. 
He who is wisdom itself, he who is light from above, Jesus Christ our Lord will light the way forward. And so it is really with great anticipation we come to a a text of Scripture that I doubt anyone would say, oh, this is a good Christmas text. But I think that it is at Christmas time, the next section we come to in the epistle of James is a section on wisdom, but not just wisdom. The way it's described is wisdom from above. And that has everything to do with Christ invading this world. He who is heavenly wisdom embodied. James 3, 13 through 18 is our text. I'll read. Please follow. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart... Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthy, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It's interesting that rather than bringing out one issue after another to test the knowledge and wisdom of people in the church and thereby to decide or define or discover who truly is wise, James, through these inspired words, would have us look at our own hearts a little bit to see how wisdom affects our own personal attitudes and, yes, our actions, to prove whether or not we really have wisdom and have grasped wisdom. I think in James's fashion, this is an intensely practical section. You'll see this. I don't think by the end I'll need to give you five ways to work on the passage. You'll be able to see how practical and how applicable it is even as we're studying it and going along. And we're going to take our time because I think it's such a powerful and important message. Now, a little bit of background. It's been a few weeks since we've been in James, so just to remind us, this is a paragraph, but it connects backwards to what preceded it, if you'll just notice for a couple of minutes. I think in at least two ways. First, James is still challenging people of influence inside the local congregations. If you look back to verse 1 of chapter 3, you'll see that he addressed first those who were aspiring to be teachers in the congregation. But then he would expand his warning about the use of the tongue to everybody in the congregation. So also now he is commencing with those who would proclaim themselves to be the wise ones in the congregation. And yet here again, his instruction is by no means intended to be confined to leaders or even to aspiring leaders. Every believer in the congregation should take a look at their own heart and think about this issue of wisdom and judge themselves. Now, James is Hebrew, and he's Hebrew in the way that he thinks. And it's true that there were sages in Israel, and so he's picking up on this Jewish understanding that within the nation of Israel, there were these men called sages, wise men, not the wise men of Christmas time, but men who were considered wise in their understanding of God's will. It has been said that the prophet was the man chosen by God to deliver the law of God. The priest then was chosen to interpret that law, but it was the sage who took the law and applied it very practically to life. 
Jesus himself acknowledged a category of men called sages in Matthew 23, verse 34. He said, I am sending you prophets and wise men, that's the sage, and scribes. And then they would go on to kill those people. But it shows the classification of those wise men. So all of this applies to leaders, but it also applies to everybody. And that's really the second point I want to make here is that this paragraph also connects backwards because it gets behind some of the problems that James was writing about in verses 1 through 12. You remember how long we talked about that, the tongue. The tongue is a problem. Our tongues are a big problem. We get into a lot of trouble with our tongue. I'll bet even after that series of messages on the tongue, some of you have gotten in trouble with your tongue. No matter how much we try to tame it, there it is just continuing to get us in trouble. The tongue James described as that restless evil, even a fire that burns, very influential even though a tiny part of the body, inconsistent in the way it praises God and curses men. Why is the tongue a problem? And here James begins to answer it because the heart is flawed. The human heart is corrupt. Our thoughts, our motivations, what drives us on the inside, we're not basically by nature good. When God made us, we were good, but we corrupted our ways, and so now we're encased and enslaved by this master called sin, and that affects the very core and center of who we are. We are sinners by nature. It takes God to change us and begin to produce something good inside of us. The core of our heart is the problem. And so by focusing on the heart, we can begin to fix the tongue. And James uh, now does that by addressing this issue of wisdom and where our hearts are in relation to wisdom. Now, many times when the Bible talks about wisdom, it contrasts the fool with the wise man. That is the absence of wisdom with those who have a lot of wisdom. A couple of examples, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 16, a wise man is cautious and turns away from evil. But a fool is arrogant and careless. You see, the fool just runs headlong into any problem. He thinks he's bold, he's daring. No, he's actually a fool. It's the wise man who looks at his steps, considers where things are going, and is very careful about that. We're always trying to teach our young people wisdom, right? You don't understand that decision will lead to this, and we try to teach them a measure of wisdom. Well, that's true for us as well. Another example, Proverbs 29, 11. A fool always loses his temper. You can count on it. In fact, if you know there's a fool in the workplace, you know when a certain topic will be brought up, this person's going to lose his cool. You could just kind of watch the clock, you know, five, four, three, two, one. There he goes. He's a fool. He cannot control his temper. Everyone starts grabbing their coffee and leaving the room because they know what's about to happen. But a wise man holds it back. Yes, he's been provoked. No, he did not like the words. Yes, there's an internal conflict, even in a wise man, but he holds it back. He won't retaliate. He won't jump at the situation. Foolishness and wisdom. However, here James wants to bring to the fore two kinds of wisdom. This is interesting. They're really polar opposites in their source, these two kinds of wisdom. One is from above... You tell already, that's the good kind, right? And then one is from where? From below, right? Yet the result of this clash of these two kinds of wisdom is going to be exactly the same. We're going to see that the wisdom, as it's called, from below is really not wisdom at all. And the wisdom from above, that's the one that is going to be preeminent. So let me put it succinctly. There are two kinds of wisdom here, one which is folly, 
another which is genuine, and James is trying to persuade us to adopt, embrace, and love the one from above. Really, there's three ways that James is going to convince us of this, and we're going to work through this in several weeks. First, he's going to issue a challenge. That's in verse 13. He's going to challenge the self-professed wise, verse 13. Second, he's going to unmask the wisdom from below, and that's in verses 14 to 16. Lastly, he's going to magnify that wisdom from above and really describe it in verses 17 and 18. So we'll get started with the challenge today. Look at verse 13. That's where we're going to focus. James challenges the self-professed wise man. Verse 13, who among you is wise and understand? That's a question. That's also a challenge. Anyone in the congregation of believers among you who thinks himself wise, that Jewish sage, now a Christian, is challenged, how about this? Step forward now. Come on, step forward. Who is the wise person? You're self-professed. Let's, let's examine you and find out if that's true or not. Of course, the readers of this letter at this point are, are kind of put under the searchlight. I think, frankly, they would feel a tad bit uncomfortable reading this letter at this point. The probing question forces them to begin thinking about themselves. Yeah, wait a minute. Am I a wise person? We don't sometimes stop and reflect about that. Am I one of the people that would be considered wise? What is true wisdom? I like Dr. MacArthur's quote. He says, it's hard to find a self-professed fool. Most people have an elevated and unrealistically high opinion of their wisdom, although they might not say so. They believe they're just as savvy as the next person. So that might be what we quietly say, but we know it's not right to say it out loud, but we still think it. I think the question also, though, encourages us to ask who around us is wise. Who should we go to? There's that little uh, phrase, uh, prepositional phrase, en humin. It's the first occurrence of this in the letter. The next one will be in chapter 4, verse 1. In this assembly among you, and of course he's writing to multiple assemblies, so wherever the assembly of believers were, as you look around in the assembly, who among you is wise and understanding? Well, whoever that is, they're the best models to follow. They're the ones to listen to. Let's take a look at these two terms, first of all, wise and understanding. Wise translates a Greek adjective, sophos. You may be more familiar with the noun which is related, sophia, wisdom. Wisdom refers to true insight and true understanding. In the regular everyday usage in Greek society, it referred to someone who knew how to do something pretty well. A master builder would be considered wise. A skillful arbiter of disputes would be considered wise. God is said to be skilled in Psalm 104, 24. It says, O Lord, how many are your works in wisdom, or you might say in insightful skill, you have made them all. You look at any part of nature and you begin to analyze it and you're just amazed how skillfully designed it is. And I don't know how the atheists don't see a design there. They're blind. There's so much design, we can't figure out the design, though we're intelligent beings. Now, really, a certain amount of skill, a certain amount of wisdom and insight certainly can happen to people just as they go through life. They live life, they're in the business world, they've lived a few years, they've dealt with people, and they've developed a certain amount of wisdom. We would all acknowledge that that is true. You can have that kind of wisdom. We talk about today a person who is a worldly wise man. You know, he, he knows the ways of the world, he knows how to maneuver around in it. 
or we see someone and they maybe don't have a lot of education, but we say, you know, that person's streetwise because they live in a dog-eat-dog world and they know how they can, they can get the most out of whatever situation that they have. And we say, look, they've gained a certain amount of, of wisdom and knowledge. In classical Greek, the term was used for skill in a handicraft. If you're really skilled, then you'd be considered really, really wise, or even in artistic beauty. But it could also be used to take on the idea of being clever in life or having reasoning abilities that could outmaneuver somebody else, someone who was sharp, they could get into a debate and an argument and kind of couch their terms properly and move the conversation in the way that they wanted. That would be a person considered wise. They, they had the craft of words and used that well. And that could, be trans, that could kind of be used in the sense of they were also cunning and you had to get what they wanted by out-talking someone else. Also, in, in uh, some of the cults in Greek society, this idea of wisdom got associated with those who believed in divine secrets, mysteries. You would be initiated into those mysteries, and so you would have a specialized kind of knowledge, and, or at least it was believed that you would have that kind of knowledge, and so you'd be in the know and know something that others didn't, and you would be considered wise. The philosophers in Athens would debate their, their various approaches to life, and they were considered the most wise in society. But this wisdom, if it can be called wisdom, has great limits to it. Paul had to abate and demolish this kind of wisdom when he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. He, in 1 Corinthians 1.20, he kind of issues his challenge, and he says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Whatever wisdom there is in the world, let's consider what they know and don't know. Let's consider how they completely misunderstood Christ and His cross and His coming. Let's look at the totality of their education and all of their experience. Hasn't God made that whole system look pretty foolish? That's what He says. In fact, later in that chapter in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, God purposefully foreordained, chose, predestined foolish people in this world so that they could be wise and to confound those that thought they were wise in this world. Later in the same letter in chapter 3, Paul writes, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish. Wow. So that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. Pretty devastating to worldly wisdom. Dan McCartney, his commentary, says, sadly, the foolishness that we fear is mostly earthly foolishness. Listen to what he writes. We hate it when our retirement portfolio fares poorly. Or when we buy a car that later gets a low rating in consumer magazines or when we wear inappropriate clothes to a social occasion. Would that we were as concerned about not being foolish with respect to God. Well, Scripture also accentuates wisdom just as the ancients did. But Scripture roots wisdom in something that's quite unique. A wise man, scripturally speaking, starts with something the world doesn't even consider. It's not on their radar at all. And, and you know it. It is the fear of the Lord, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. It's not good enough to know how the world operates, how to manipulate people. 
skillfully turn a reporter's question into the soundbite that you want to say. Boy, those politicians are good at that. How to outdo somebody for a promotion. You have to be able to see beyond all of that or you don't really see all that much if you want to be truly wise. The fear of Yahweh, the reverence of this one God of the heavens, that's where all knowledge begins. Until you see God, until God is put into the equation of your life and your thinking, you don't have any wisdom at all. Sorry for all the money you spent to go to college. You didn't get any wisdom from God. You have to have reverence for God. Your thoughts will run aground. They'll fail you. You don't understand the universe and the world the way it actually is. And that goes for scientists as well. The second word is kind of like it. It's the word understanding. It's an adjective also, epistremon. Actually, it's used only here in the New Testament. It's used, though, in common Greek, and it, it differs from wisdom only slightly. It kind of pictures the, the expert, the one who has specialized knowledge. You know, you might ask somebody a question about plumbing or about your car or something, and they have some general knowledge, and you might glean a few things from that person. But when you have a really difficult problem, a health problem or whatever it is, you want to go and find that one expert, don't you? That would be this person, the one with understanding. And then they would speak, and you'd be like, see, I'm glad there's finally someone that really understands and can guide me because I had a very special problem. That's what this word was used for in everyday society. It's not theoretical knowledge. Well, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. No, they're able to put the feet on the ground, so to say, and, and show in practical situations, let's take this knowledge now, all this knowledge that you have, and in this situation, here's what you need to do. That was someone with understanding. So the question is, who fits that category in the churches? That's what James is asking. Now next, please notice, James reveals how we can know. How would we know? How are we going to answer the question? Well, here's how we'll know who is wise. James writes next, let him show it. Who's wise? Let him show it. It's a little different answer, isn't it? I'm wise. I'm smart. Listen to me. No, don't do that. Show wisdom in your life. That's actually an active imperative, dexatos. Show it. Display it in your life. James is a lot about this in his book, isn't he? Who's the one who has actual faith? Back in chapter 2, verse 18, he says, I will show you my faith by my what? My deeds. You don't know whether someone has faith until you see the deeds. You can't see faith. You can only see the deeds that come from faith. So how do we know someone genuinely has faith in Christ? We look at the deeds. Same thing with wisdom. How do we know who has wisdom? We're not listening to what they say. We're looking at their deeds, their life. Display it in the way you live is what he's saying. That's how wisdom is shown. By the way, that's the crucial point in all of this. If you don't get anything else, please get that. Wisdom has to be shown in life. If it's not shown in life, the person's not wise. That's the point. So if you get lost in everything else the next three weeks, that is it. A truly wise person demonstrates it in life. Wisdom is not proven in fancy rhetoric or highfalutin words. True wisdom must be shown in the life of the individual. You know, every time some issue hits the news, and it's all the time, isn't it? You ha we had the massacre, as sad as that was. There was the Paris thing. There's the riots in Chicago. There's what do we do with gun control? What do we do with the terrorists? You always, they always 
put on, no matter what news show it is, all of the, the wise men and women. I call them the talking heads, you know, the pundits. Why are we listening to them? No one asks them, how do you live your life? Background information is really great to have. It gives you some important prior knowledge that helps you understand things more clearly as Pastor Tom did in today's message. He shared with you that James addressed heart issues in his letter to people who were struggling with wisdom. Do you know that wisdom affects your thoughts and actions? What happens when you're focused on earthly things? Will you have genuine godly wisdom or will it be more worldly? With sad yet hope-filled hearts, we want to let you know that Pastor Tom Leak, the voice you've been listening to today, has gone home to be with Jesus. Pastor Tom served the Lord faithfully here on earth for 24 years, pastoring thousands and helping to create a network of like-minded churches in the Mid-Atlantic region. He shared the gospel unashamedly, shining light into this dark world. Pastor Tom will be missed, but we rejoice that he is healed and with his Savior. If you would like to learn more about Pastor Tom and his legacy, visit HopeBible.org. Now, here's a preview of the next edition of Discover Hope. That was so dumb. I can't believe they did that. These thoughts can run rampant in your mind when you look at others and think they're acting unwisely. The world considers Jesus' wisdom dumb. Does this matter to you? or are you focused on wisdom from above? Listen in next time to hear Pastor Tom unpack how we can know who's wise and what heavenly wisdom looks like. There's much more to learn from the book of James, so we hope you'll tune in next time. If you'd like to listen again to today's teaching or share it with friends and family, you'll find it online at hopebible.org. Thanks for joining us on Discover Hope.